This audio is from the third night of our Theology Night and was recorded on January 28th. This is a final session of three in our series called Hermeneutics. And this session has been edited just a bit from its original content in order to fit this format. So if you have any questions as you listen, please let us know at info at stoneoakbible.com. All right, so we're on night three of Bible study methods. Uh, tonight, just give you a quick overview. We're going to finish up interpretation. We have a couple more points to finish on interpretation. Uh, and then we're going to get into the last step of Bible study methods, which is the application piece. Uh, last week, just like the very first week, I sent you home with some homework. How was it? Where did you get stuck at? Because most of you, I'm guessing, probably got stuck sooner rather than later uh, compared to the first time. So how was it doing another 30 on the same text? This time I give you a little bit of an extra help that you could use the Acts chapter 1, the whole chapter, to kind of help with the context. How was it? Give me some feedback. Yes. Good. It answered a bunch of, of Bob's questions is what he's saying. that If he would have been able to read the entire chapter of Acts chapter 1 and then do the very first observations a lot of his questions would have been answered because in Acts chapter 1 we have quite a few questions of the text answered just by the couple of verses before, some verses after, uh, even all the way to the kind of the beginning of Acts chapter 1, you can begin to answer some of the questions we had for Acts 1-8. What else? Yeah. Yeah, the observations were longer and it took more of an explanation to really get into them. And a lot of that is because we have the context of it. Because we're not asking the easy questions of unsure of who's speaking, unsure of who the audience is, to where we have the entire context, we can now say, okay, I can see that the speaker is Jesus based upon this verse here. It doesn't show me that until later on, though. Another great observation. Anything else? How many did you end up with? Did you, did you stop at 60? Did you continue going? Stop. S- stopped at 60? Yeah. That's where I was too. Once I got to like, uh, I think it was like 16 or 17 this time, it slowed way down, which is a good thing because then I'm having to look at the text even more and I'm having to go back and say, okay, what questions did I have on the first one that I can now answer? What from the context helps me with this verse? Are there any questions that still remain for me? Okay. Excellent. Glad that we did that. Um, It's a fun exercise and I enjoy doing it each time. Um, this is probably the, I guess, fifth or sixth time that I've actually done this exercise where you're doing observations. And I've always done it on Acts 1-8. And every time that I do it, I'm still learning something new, which is great. I see the text in a little bit of a different way. Uh, and it's speaking to me in a, a completely different way, which is great. I love whenever the, the text becomes alive through an act such as doing this. Uh, so that was the observation piece that we've still been kind of continuing on each night. We've been kind of going back to the observation piece because it is so important as we get into the interpretation stage. Uh, we discussed last week uh, with interpretation the five C's. What were they? They were con, con, calm, culture, con. Did anybody like get that stuck in your head that last night? Con, con, calm, culture, con. Con, con, calm, culture, con. Con, con, calm, culture, con. Are you annoyed with it yet? Because as you continue doing it, it'll tend to go, it's like one of those terrible commercials that you see on TV. You're like, that was the worst commercial I've ever seen. But you remember that commercial?
Yeah. What's going on in the area? Where are we located at? Uh, whereas the first one's the actual words, the second one's more of the, the, the setting of it. Uh, how is this related as far as paragraph and verse? Is this important? As far as the history of it, is this important? Um, what's the culture of the time? Does the culture matter within this one? I would say, yes, it definitely does matter within this one. Uh, the geography, the theological context, how do they have an understanding of God at this point, and how does that help us understand this text? Okay? Uh, and then the last point we ended with, with, with the interpretation last week was comparison. And what are we doing in comparison? Absolutely. We're looking at other scriptures. Oftentimes when we come to a scripture that is not clear, we can usually find a scripture that is more clear to help us understand it. It's one of the great things of a reference Bible is that a lot of times if you have a reference Bible, they can refer you to different places. Sometimes it's helpful. Other times you have no idea how they made that connection. Uh, it's a great extra biblical resource. All right. So we're continuing on with interpretation here. So we've done content, context. We've done comparison. The next one, culture. So the culture. What are the factors that lead to the writing and what was happening at that current time? We've already answered this one a little bit in the context section. One of the parts of context is the cultural context, the setting of the time. This is just kind of expanding out even more. What is the context? What's going on at this time uh, as the writing has occurred, as the events have taken place? Let me give an example here. Uh, if you have your Bible, grab them. Go to John chapter 13. John 13, we're going to read verses 21 through 30. John 13, 21 through 30. Give you a second to get there and then I'll go ahead and read it. John 13, 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, or because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Uh, what's going on within this, this text here? Explain to me. What's happening? What is this scene known as? The Last Supper. Okay, and what's happening here during the Last Supper? Okay, they're eating. It's a supper. That's very important. What else? What's the dialogue happening here? What do we what do we clued into here in this section? Betrayal. betrayal, okay? Betrayal is going to occur, and who's going to do this betrayal? Judas, okay? The end section here though gives us a little bit something that's interesting. 
uh, with verse 28. Verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Why is that? Why was it? They weren't listening. Part of it. They didn't know. Absolutely. Why? What's the text say? How is this conversation happening? What's the physical nature of this conversation? How are they positioned? Reclining. Okay, so there's a, a laying down. They're, they're laying to eat. What else? There's something specific here that the reason that they don't understand verse 28 is because, look at verse 25. So the disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? So what's happening there? A private conversation. He's leaning back against Jesus. And it appears that it's a private conversation. We're unsure if anybody else is clued into this conversation. We're guessing based upon verse 28 here that nobody else knows what that conversation was. All right? There's a cultural piece within this, though. Whenever we instantly said the word Last Supper, is anybody like a visual person that you think visually? Whenever you hear the words Last Supper, what do you usually think of? The painting. Okay? So I have on my iPad here the painting of the Last Supper. If you're listening to this online, simply do a Google image search of Last Supper and you will instantly find it. It's like number two on that list. There's a cultural piece that is painted into this. There's a ton of culture that is painted into this. Because this painting doesn't match the biblical story in a number of areas. What do you instantly see that's wrong with this painting? They're sitting at a table. Why? Because culturally, that's how they ate when this was painted. So the artist here decides, I'm going to paint it in a way that makes sense to the people that are going to receive my art. Reclining at a table, sitting, laying down upon the floor. We don't do that. That's odd to us. I'm going to paint it like my current culture. So they insert that. What else do you see different about this? Uh, there, no, there, I would say no, there is not a cup. There's a number of odd looking dishes, but I don't think any of them are deep enough in order to, to take a drink. Uh, yeah, so there is a, a dipping of the morsel of bread. So it's being dipped into something. I don't see very many items that could be dipped into there. So they have decided to remove that within the culture. Yes? Excellent. So he removed the cup even. They wanted the focus to be upon Jesus and not the cup. Excellent. There's something else that's kind of odd about this. They're all on one side of the table. Okay? That's very weird to me. If I have a group of my friends over and I say everybody needs to sit on this side, what does that do as far as conversation? You're very confined. You can talk to the person to your left. You can talk to the person to your right. If we sit across from the table and we have a true, like, normal seating arrangement, communication happens a whole lot more easy 
Whereas this type of a setting, it's not built for communication. What's it built for? A picture. It's built to display people. It's built so that you can count one, two, three, you can count everybody that's there, okay? There's one other big thing. What time of day is in the painting? It is day. What does our text say? Yeah, it would be close to the evening time. The artist here has decided to insert current culture within the painting. And it's often what we think of whenever we think of the Last Supper. We're usually drawn instantly. Our minds usually go to something that is familiar. And this painting is a very familiar painting. However, this painting is not familiar with the cultural setting of the text. It is instead familiar with the cultural setting of the painting. There's a big difference between those two. He's taken some artistic liberties in the painting. Okay? So you have to think about the culture there. Then that last one for the key to interpretation, consultation. Consultation is the use of secondary sources. So the use of secondary sources. <clears throat> Before we get into consultation, there's something very important to realize, however. The Bible is enough. Okay? The text alone, the Bible, is enough. However, there are a number of uninspired tools which are very helpful at times for us to get a, a more clear understanding of what's going on. These are, once again, uninspired. However, they can be helpful. So I'm just going to walk through some of the sources uh, to give you a good idea of what they are. Uh, some of them you probably own currently. Uh, majority of them I'd say you probably own currently and most of them if you have some of these instances they have everything kind of bound together. Uh, so the very first one is a study Bible and you hit that pause button wait I thought a Bible was the source it's not a secondary source correct however within a study Bible you have study notes okay you also have references within them you also have usually the uh, dictionary section in the back. All of those are the uninspired pieces. Okay? Uh, anybody have a study Bible with them tonight? Hold it up, kind of spin it around so we can kind of see what your uh, pages, what your text looks like if you would. So general layout of a study Bible is you're going to have text up top, usually uh, anywhere depending on how much study notes they want to put in. Anywhere from like a quarter of the page to usually half uh, it's even sometimes two-thirds of the page is the biblical text. And then they usually insert study notes below. These study notes usually are along the lines of a commentary. Uh, they can help you to understand the text a little bit better if you need that. Um, they also usually have in the back more additional resources. And generally within a study Bible, you're also going to have references, usually down the middle uh, towards the spine or either on the outsides, which then can refer you to different scriptures. Study Bibles are useful tools. Uh, I have a number of them, and they, they can have different purposes as well. Uh, for instance, so I have a, an ESV study Bible. The ESV study Bible um, is geared simply around the text. That's, that's their purpose, is geared around the text. I also have an NIV life application Bible. The study notes at the bottom of that are not necessarily commentary type of study notes. They're more how you can apply the text to your life. It's written around application piece. Uh, I also have an apologetics study Bible. So the apologetics study Bible, instead of having once again study notes at the bottom, it has more of how this text can be misused or what others possibly think about this text. 
There are three different versions of a study Bible, but they all are classified as study Bibles. Generally, no matter uh, what your preferred translation is, you can find a really good study Bible out there. Also realize the more you insert into a Bible, the more expensive they get. So this right here, what I'm holding in front of you today, is my cheap Bible. Okay? This is just an ESV. There's nothing special about it. It has uh, no references even with it. References are usually kind of like the base model of Bibles. This is even below that. This is my, I can throw it in my bag and it's not going to bother me if, for instance, the book of Ephesians, like the first chapter, is barely in there. Um, it's just my kind of throwaway Bible. That sounds terrible, but it's my, it can get destroyed Bible and that's okay with me because it was a cheap Bible. I have my study Bibles which stay on my desk because they're big and they're heavy and I don't want to carry those around. Uh, I have different Bibles for different purposes um, and that's okay, except for I have so many now that I think my wife has kind of said quit buying so many Bibles. So it's, it's a great, 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 great problem to have when we have too many Bibles. Uh, next thing after study Bibles. A concordance. Does anybody know what a concordance is? Good. Good. So part of a concordance, there's really two parts within a concordance. Uh, one part of them kind of has the dictionary piece within it. Uh, but there's another piece within a concordance. And that is, it is, let's say I want to look up all the verses that contain a specific word. I want to look up every Bible verse that has the word faith within it. I, I can grab a concordance and I can thumb through and I can find the word faith. What it then does is it underneath that usually have a small quick definition and then it'll list out every place that the word faith can be found both in Old Testament and New Testament throughout. Okay. You can think, if, if we have a word like faith, how many times that can actually be within there. Usually, a concordance is going to be a large book that usually remains on the shelf. You're not going to usually carry this one around. It also usually has an extremely small typeface with extremely thin papers because there are usually so many pages within a concordance. Also, concordances are tied to translations. They have to be. Because what I find in an ESV could differ what I find in an NASB. They could have different words. So if I'm looking for the word faith, the ESV has translated this word as faith. However, the NASB has not translated this word as faith. So if I'm looking at an ESV concordance and I have my NASB Bible, they might not match up. There are also abridged and unabridged concordances. Okay? Which is, we have, if it's unabridged, you're first of all paying a lot of money and as well you're paying a lot of weight within this book because they are very large, because they literally have gone through, I would have hate to have been like the original person that did this, but they have gone through and they find the word faith in every single location according to that translation, which can be a helpful tool if you want to do a word study on something. If you want to do a word study on, I'm really curious about perseverance. Great. A concordance would be a great place to start because you're beginning not with the text, but you're beginning with a specific word that is then driving you to the text. Okay? Uh, after a concordance, we have a Bible dictionary. Most of the time, a concordance and a Bible dictionary can be tied together. I have uh, a couple of these where I have a concordance, like the first half of the book is a concordance, the second half of the book is a Bible dictionary because they both go hand in hand so well. Some of them merge them together into one simple book. Those are nice. If not, you have a concordance, which is just 
here's every place, here's all the references you can find there. Then you have a Bible dictionary. And a Bible dictionary is simply what it sounds like. It's a dictionary of biblical terms that are defined biblically. Okay? So if I look up the word faith, I can go to like dictionary.com, and it's going to be a definition for faith. However, it might not be a biblical definition for faith. It might be uh, whatever you want to believe. Okay? So the biblical definition could possibly differ from a secular definition. Uh, a Bible dictionary is a great tool to have because it does help with the original language. It can help you understand how they translated or possibly why they translated that word as faith. Okay? Uh, a Bible handbook is the next one. Uh, anybody own a Bible handbook? Bob. Nice. All right. So a Bible handbook is a great tool. Uh, the best way I can kind of determine or kind of describe what a Bible handbook is, is imagine if you took a study Bible and you removed all of the, 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 the words, the text from uh, the Bible and just were left with like the study notes. That's the best description I can kind of have of a Bible handbook because it in includes so many different things within it. It usually has a dictionary within it. Um, it usually has maps within it. It usually has a little bit of commentary within it. Usually has, yeah, usually it has pictures within them, which are great. Uh, and the newer ones even have the color pictures, which is even better. And laminate pages, which is even better. They're, they're harder to rip those laminated pages. I'm a big fan of those. Uh, a Bible handbook uh, is a good tool um, as far as what it needs. But because you can find majority of the things that a Bible handbook has within a study Bible, and you don't need a Bible right next to your Bible handbook, I'd prefer just to use a good study Bible over a good Bible and a good Bible handbook. But that's just a personal opinion. Uh, then the next one, we're going to skip over that one. We're going to come back to it. Uh, we're going to go to atlases. Okay? So a, a Bible atlas. So if I were to just go buy an atlas today, it could possibly be helpful. However, names have changed quite a bit. Territories have changed quite a bit. What a Bible atlas does is it puts the uh, the timing of the events to a map, which is very helpful. So whenever we're reading that Jesus goes from this city to this city, we can pull out the Bible atlas and see exactly what his trip would have looked like. Uh, we can see possibly the amount of distance that he would have covered, the amount of time. Whenever we're looking at the book of Job, his three friends came from three different areas. Just reading through that, if you're unfamiliar with those areas, which I think 98% of our church is unfamiliar with those areas, I was like, I don't know where these areas actually are. Looking at a Bible atlas, you can see something very important about the distance that these friends traveled. It was not a small amount. They gave up a lot to travel and to go see Job. That's important. We can see, one, the timing of it is that Job is not like instantly suffering, friends instantly show up. But Job instantly suffers... Long period of suffering still occurring. Longer period of suffering occurring. And then our friends are showing up. We know it's because of the amount of distance that they would have to travel. The amount of distance that even Job being in his current state would have had to get to the friends. And then the friends would have had to travel back. So it helps us to understand kind of the geography of what's going on here as well. Uh, the last one on our list here are commentaries. Uh, a commentary can be a useful tool. However, there's... A big caveat that I would throw into a commentary. Uh, a commentary is simply one man or multiple men, depending on what you're looking at, opinion of what the text says. Okay? Uh, they can be helpful, but realize you're looking at someone's opinion. 
There are good commentaries out there, and there are some very poor commentaries out there. Whenever you're looking for a commentary, you can do multiple things with commentaries as well. They make commentaries that are uh, entire Bible commentaries. Uh, the most popular one probably be like Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry's commentary is from Genesis to Revelation. Okay? It's a large one volume of the entire Bible that he's writing his comments on. That's why it's called a commentary. You can go with that method of buying one book to cover the entire Bible, or you can go with the method of buying a single book to cover a single book. Um, so, for instance, going through the book of Job, we bought a commentary, we bought, I think, two or three commentaries from individuals who are simply looking at the book of Job. They're not looking at any other book within the Bible. So it is a one volume for the book of Job. Now, there are also series within commentaries. So you can buy, like, the Zondervan commentary series. And what that one does is it puts each biblical book in its own commentary book, which you can, you're going to need a good bookshelf amount to contain all of these. Uh, but they do kind of put some books together. Uh, usually some of the minor prophets are kind of smashed into one book together. Uh, commentaries are a great thing, but once again, all of these resources here are uninspired resources. And let me go back to the, the one we skipped over, Bible software. Uh, Bible software is great. Uh, all of you own Bible software, by the way. Its name right now is Google or Siri or Cortana. Um, if you simply speak into your phone, it can pull up whatever you want to right now. However, you're not really sure what you're going to be getting whenever you simply Google something. Um, so there is now Bible software that is great. Uh, the big ones out there, the biggest one is Logos. Uh, Accordance is another one. Olive Tree is another one. Um, all of these are great resources. However, they can get very expensive very fast because they show you this massive discount of what you're buying. Um, so, for instance, you buy like a package which gives you access to their software. And then you're like, hey, here's the basics that you bought. And it's usually going to come with what, one of each of the things we just went over. It's going to come with a Bible dictionary. It's going to come with a couple of commentaries usually. But these are going to be like entire Bible commentaries. So usually Matthew Henry is one of these. Uh, usually going to come with a concordance. Um, if you're lucky, you might get like a map or two. However, they're immediately going to show you, you know what, let us show you like our visual pack. And in the visual pack, it's like, here's all the maps you would ever need. And you're like, yes, that's excellent. Oh, and we include all of the pictures. And in fact, we've linked them to the biblical text. So as you're reading, anytime you see a location, if you click on it, we're going to show you this beautiful color picture. And before you've known it, you've bought thousands of dollars of Bible books because they're all on sale. And it's great. Until you realize, I just bought thousands of dollars of Bible books because they're on sale. Uh, but the nice thing about them is it's easy and it's portable. So I can hold multiple commentaries now on my iPad. I can hold multiple Bible dictionaries on my iPad. Uh, it's an easy resource that if you don't have the massive bookshelf space for all of the uh, Zondervan commentary series, you could buy them all and put them all onto uh, your computer, your phone even, uh, or an iPad. So it's a great resource, and usually the books are at a, a pretty big discount compared to if you buy the print, uh, but it can be tough at times if you're, like me, I love real books over 
digital books. Um, so I prefer using the print copy, but I love the ease and the portability of the digital copies. Um, if you're looking at Bible software, start with a base package. See if it's even for you. Um, start with like Logos would be a popular one. Yeah. I think it might be Olive Tree or something along those lines is another free one. But eSword, yeah, I forgot about eSword. It is a free one. Uh, you'll notice within the, there's different publishers, and some publishers really love their Bibles, and some publishers really love giving their Bibles. And so some of the Bibles that you want on there, you're going to have to pay for. And it's usually, I want to say like $15, I think, 15 to $20 for um, some of the Bible translations. I could be off on that. Yeah. Excellent. So Bob, about the New American Standard, it came with the concordance, which is, once again, they're tied to translations, and he said he paid about $35 for that one. E-sword. S-W-O-R-D. Sword. Yeah, Logos is free. So if you're looking at Logos, they have like a, a base base package, which is simply... Biblical text and some of the free resources that you can find just like out on the internet. Um, I think Matthew Henry is now like a free commentary that you can get. Uh, and so any kind of open publications, they'll automatically insert that in for you. And the cool thing about these is that you can buy bundles or you can buy individual books, which is really nice. Um, so for me, I choose to buy the individual books just because I don't want to spend $1,000 on a massive bundle whenever I just want certain books within it. So I'm going to pay a little bit more for each individual book. However, I get exactly what I want. It's kind of like a cable company where you wish I could pay for just the channels that I want. Sorry, that doesn't work that way. Within the biblical world, though, of software, it does. So if you're looking for just a, I just want a commentary on the book of Job as we're going through it, and I want to be able to access it on my phone. So uh, as we are going through the text, I can look and see, is this even close to what other commentators have said? You can download it directly to your phone. Logos has uh, an iPhone app. They have an iPad app. Um, and it is a very clean and sleek resource. As well, within each one of these, I also have, just have like common Christian living type of books. Um, so pretty much anything that you can go into a Christian bookstore and buy, Logos generally is going to have their own version of it. Um, great resource. Feel free to, to look at those. Um, I'm sorry if your bank accounts are not going to be drained because I've, I've pointed you to, to Bible software. Uh, but it's a great resource. And Google's always free as well. Um, so if you can't see yourself using these in a big way or can't kind of justify the purpose and you just need something for a quick here and now, Google should probably work for you. So we've done our observations uh, with our interpretations. Now, where do we begin? What would we grab first off the shelf to do our interpretation? Correct. The Bible. Okay? Interpretation begins with the Bible. These are secondary sources. Use these tools whenever you're stuck. Use these tools whenever scripture isn't so clear in another place or I want to know what the custom was or I don't understand the geography or I don't understand why it's even important here. Go grab one of those books. They can possibly help you. Okay? So interpretation begins with the Bible. These are all uninspired secondary sources, but they can be helpful. 
So we've done observation. Big question we asked in observation is, what do I see? We then moved on to inf interpretation. Interpretation, we're asking the question of, what does it mean? We then go from the step of interpretation of after we figured out uh, the meaning, we now go to the step of, step of application of kind of the so what, how does it work or how does it apply? So with application, first, follow the process. There is a process within Bible study methods. Oftentimes, we're not gonna wanna put forth the work. Observation was tough. It took time. Interpretation, it can be tough. It takes time. <coughs> Application, it's tough and it takes time. But oftentimes, we're going to read the text and we're going to immediately say, okay, how does this apply to me? We go directly from reading text, skipping over observation, skipping over interpretation, and immediately going to the appli application process. Go through the steps. Observe the text. Interpret the text. And then apply the text. If we jump directly from text to application, we can often misapply the text. Uh, if you have your Bibles, grab, grab them, turn to James chapter 1. James 1, verses 23 through 25. It's probably a familiar passage to you. James 1, 23 through 25. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If I go into the mirror tomorrow morning and I see I have like this just green gunk sitting in my teeth, I see it, I observe it, but then I think, you know what, I'm not going to take care of that. I'm just going to actually just leave and it'll be an okay day. Or I'm like, man, I probably should have taken a shower this morning. I smell terrible. You know what, I've got a couple of meetings. Ah, it's not a big deal. I'm just going to go with them stinky and with green stuff in my teeth. I've observed it, but I've never taken care of it. Oftentimes we can approach the text in this way. Where we can observe the text, we can interpret the text, but we never actually apply it to ourselves. Or we oftentimes do this one where I really wish so-and-so was sitting here today because they really need to hear this sermon. What we've done is we've taken it, we've observed it, we've interpreted it, but we haven't applied it to ourselves. We've applied it to that lesser human being that should really be in here to really hear this text because I know it's going to affect them in such a way. Instead of looking at ourselves, looking in the mirror and saying, you know what, I've got some green stuff in my teeth right now that needs to be taken care of. Don't simply be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. You've done so much work already. You've put in a lot of hours, minutes, possibly some tears within these observations. There could have been some pencils thrown. Don't stop there, though. It'd be like if I was creating a hamburger. And I love hamburgers. Hamburgers are one of my favorite meals within the world. And I say meal because a hamburger includes everything within it. So it's got everything. It's got vegetables. It's got fruit. Tomatoes are fruit. Uh, it's got your carbohydrates. It's loaded with salt and with sugar. And it's got the meat patty in there. So it's like a complete meal within one individual thing. Uh, but I'm going to make like the perfect hamburger. Okay? I'm going to make everything so perfect. I'm actually going to do everything myself. I'm not going to go to HEB and buy anything. I'm going to plant everything 
and I'm going to harvest everything, and I'm going to make myself the ultimate cheeseburger. So in order to begin, first thing I need to do is buy some stuff. So I'm going to buy a cow. I'm going to buy uh, some grains because I want a hamburger bun. I hate having uh, a hamburger on bread. I want it on a hamburger bun, and a hamburger bun, like bread, requires grain. So I'm going to buy some grain. Um, I want on my hamburger, I want cheese. So I'm going to need a dairy cow as well. So I've got two cows now. One I'm going to butcher for my meat. One I'm going to milk. Uh, I want tomatoes. So I'm going to plant some tomatoes. I want lettuce, so I'm going to plant some lettuce. Um, I want ketchup, so I'm going to plant some more tomatoes. Um, I want salt, so I'm going to dig up some rock salt within my yard, I guess. Um, I want some pepper, so I'm going to find some black pepper in my yard as well. I've got a really big yard, apparently. Um, I also want, with all my hamburger, I want mayonnaise. Um, Chickens, yeah, so I'm going to have some chickens that are going to produce some eggs and some oil, I guess, goes into mayonnaise. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to grow, apparently, uh, an olive tree so I can press my own olive oil to go into my, my mayonnaise, okay? So it's the beginning of the year. I'm going to begin about fall time. I'm going to uh, buy all of this over the summer, and I'm going to begin to fatten up my, my cow, uh, and I'm going to begin to uh, plant then in early spring. So every day I'm going out and I'm tending to my garden. Um, I'm making sure that I'm watering everything, that everything has uh, the correct pH balance of my soil, uh, making sure that the deer have not come and just destroyed my crop, making sure that all the animals have stayed away, uh, making sure I don't get any kind of uh, little tiny bugs crawling on anything. I want it to be like the perfect garden. So it's beginning to grow. The sprouts are starting to come through the ground. I'm getting excited because there's beginning to be some, some fruits of my labor, labor. I can begin to see kind of the, the vegetables beginning to rise from the ground. I can begin to see uh, the chickens are starting to lay eggs at this point. Uh, the cow is beginning to become fatter and fatter. And I, I like a juicy hamburger, so the more fat I can put upon this cow, the better. And so I'm continuing to do this every day. I'm devoting time in the morning, time in the evening to make sure that this is all going to work out for me. And so now it's now a year and it's the fall time and it's the harvest. And so I go out into my, my garden, which has kind of consumed the area in which I have planted. It is very tall. The wheat that I have planted is about six feet tall and the tomato plants have just been beautiful and I see they have like the perfectly ripe glossy outside of the tomato and I look at the lettuce and I see that there's kind of that dew just sitting on the outside of the tomato or outside of the lettuce excuse me um, and my cow is just gorgeously fat and both of them are just plump and ripe and I'm so excited and my chickens are laying some of like the biggest eggs I have ever seen. My olive tree has grown in a one year time to an extremely high amount and it has beautiful olives on there which I am so ready to press. And so I'm gonna begin to harvest this. So I'm gonna begin with my olives and so I pull off all of my olives from my tree and I take them inside and I'm gonna create my own olive oil. So I pit them all and then I crush them all and I get the extra, extra, extra virgin olive oil and I set that to the side. And uh, I then take my wheat and I bring it inside and I grind my own wheat for my own flour because I don't want anybody else to even touch my flour. They could possibly grind it too fine or grind it too coarse and I want it exactly like I want it. So it's ground perfectly and I set that to the side and I 
grab my vegetables and I bring them inside and I place them in the, the chiller to, to make them nice and cool and I take my cow and I have it butchered and I'm there with the entire process and I have the meat mixed exactly like I want it. I have the exact cuts that are all then put into my hamburger so it's got the exact amount of fat that I'm wanting within it. And I begin to milk my cow as well, and I take the dairy, and I process it into cheese, however that occurs. And then I take the chickens, and I take the eggs, and I somehow magically make mayonnaise out of eggs and oil, and something else goes in it, I'm sure. And it's, oh, it's delicious. I, I dip my finger, and I can taste it, and it's just supreme. And so I begin to then form my patty. And so I like a large hamburger. And so I, I take probably about a half pound of this this juicy burger, and you can see the, the fat is marbled throughout it. It is red, and it is white, and it is just glorious, and it smells just so fresh. And So I begin to patty it out into a nice, thick burger where the, the middle is a little bit larger than the outside, so as it cooks up, it doesn't kind of turn into that hockey pucker, turn into even the ball of, of meat, but it should stay perfectly pattied, and I've got it perfectly circled as well. And I have my grill, tss, it's hot, yes. So I take that patty and I toss it on the grill and that sizzle. And I know everything is going well. So I close the lid to that grill and I walk inside and I grab my tomato out of the chiller and I begin to slice it. And I like a thick slice of tomato on my, my hamburger. So I, I cut off the first one a little too thin, cut off the next a little too thick and then I get all oh, that perfect slice and I put a little salt on one of them and taste it. And oh, these are the best tomatoes I think I've ever had. And then I grab my lettuce, and I don't want like the outside of the lettuce. I want kind of that next layer in. Not quite the, the outside of the lettuce that has been exposed to all of the elements, but that virgin lettuce within there. And I spread open those first outer leaves, and the next leaves still have the dew on them. And they are still wet, and they are damp, and they are cold, and I think perfect. And I take my flour, and I, I make a hamburger bun, and I place it into the oven, and I can smell the bread now and it just smells delicious so I pull the bun out of the oven and I slice it exactly down the middle and I begin by placing the ketchup on the bottom of that bun and then I place the the lettuce kind of with that that shape that crown kind of placing up as a bowl for just this glorious burger that's cooking out there and so I remember oh that's right I have a burger out there so I run outside and I grab the burger and I pull it off the grill and I place it upon that piece of lettuce and then I place of course the cheese next and then the the tomato on top and finally I place the mayonnaise on the top half of that bun and I marry them both together and it looks gorgeous I've got the bun and I've got the brown of the bun and the red of the tomato and the green of that lettuce and take a big breath in and I can just smell that meat that the fat has now cooked out of it but it is still a juicy burger and I know that I have the warm elements of the bun and the burger and the cool elements of the ketchup and the mayonnaise and the lettuce and tomato and it is all married perfectly together and I grab not like a paper plate or not even like a normal dinner plate but I go into the cupboard and grab like the nice plate the people are coming over and we need to impress them plate. And so I grab that plate and I place the burger on top of it and I'm gonna go enjoy this out in the beautiful Texas fall sun. It's about a cool 72 degrees outside, perfect weather. The sun is shining down, it's warming me up. And I place my hamburger down and I think, you know what needs to go with this is just a nice glass of lemonade. So I get up and I walk inside and as I walk inside, I turn back around and a bird comes down and eats my burger and runs away. 
This is what happens if we stop and we don't go through the process of application. We've put in all of the time. We've put in all of the work. I've made you so incredibly hungry now. Devour. Eat. Apply. Oftentimes we don't go through the step because it's the hard step. Because it can confront sin. Because it can cause us to do things that are crazy and are ridiculous and are weird. Don't stop there. Consume. Eat. Now that you're starving, let's look at application. Four steps of application. First one, no. First one is no. Know the text. We should have this down. If we did observation correctly, we did interpretation correctly. We know the text. The next one, just as important, know yourself. Know where you're weak. Know where you're strong. Know what your tendencies are. Do you usually stray away from things that are tough within Scripture? Do I usually try to change the meaning of things that it calls me to? Next one, relate. Ask yourself the question, how does this relate to my specific situation? How does this text, which was written to a specific audience, which is not necessarily me at this time, how does this still relate to me, though? What is the relation between what Christ has said here and me in 2016? Meditate. This is a word that comes with many foreign understandings and uh, many, whenever we think of meditation, we often think of Eastern religions. But they have something there. Sit. Ponder. It's kind of like the crockpot of scripture. If you remember back to the very first night, I said with Acts 1.8, you might get stuck. Let go of it and come back to it. Because what your mind will continually do is whenever you're working on a task or a project, although you might not be consciously thinking about it, one of the interesting things about your brain is it's still working. It's still working that out. So don't look at scripture as an instant fix, but sometimes it's a crock pot. That it's a set it and I'm going to let it simmer. I'm going to let it soak. I'm going to let all of the flavors marinate together. I'm really talking about food tonight. Are you getting hungry yet? Hopefully you ate before you came. If not, I am so sorry. But it's the crock pot of, of it's a slow cooking process. Meditate on it. Sit in silence without distraction. Which can be very tough at times. It can take some planning. Fourth one, practice. Grow. Start small. If it calls you to something extreme and you think, I can't do that right now, what steps can I take to get to that point? Grow and begin to practice what the scripture says. The next one, nine questions to ask. Nine questions to ask whenever we're, we're looking over application. And these are simply nine questions that can be helpful for us when we don't quite see the application immediately. Some texts, it's a lot harder to see, how does this text apply to me today? Go through these nine questions and see if maybe it answers one of them. So the first, is there an example for me to follow? Is there an example? Yes or no? And if there is an example, is this possibly an example I want to follow? If we're looking at the book of Job, we're filled with examples. Some of those examples we should follow. Some of those examples you say, you know, I don't want to follow that one. Great. We can still apply it. Next one. Is there a sin to avoid? Does this text show us a sin that we should therefore be avoiding? Is there a promise to claim? Is there a truth of scripture within this? If so, let's look at that. How does that apply to me right now? Does it give me hope? Does it give me confidence? What does it tell me? 
Is there a prayer to repeat? Is there a prayer within Scripture that we can repeat, that we can say, you know what, I'm going to say the exact words of this prayer because it rings true within my heart? Is there a command to obey? Is the text calling us to do something? Is there an action piece within this? Within Acts 1.8, is there an action piece within this? Yes, there's an action piece within this. There's a command. Is there a condition to meet? Is there something that I need to do? Is there a condition? Is there a verse to memorize? Is there something within this that I think, you know what? This is one of those texts that I want to carry with me at all times. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to memorize this. Is there an error to mark? Not an error within the text, but an error within an individual that we then can avoid. You know what? I see the consequence of that. Therefore, I'm going to avoid what that individual did within the text. And last one, is there a challenge to face? Does the scripture present you with a challenge? And are you going to face it? Or are you going to say, you know what? I'm not sure if that can necessarily apply to me today. So those are nine questions to kind of begin to ask that can help us with the point of application. Application is one of those tough pieces. Because we've done the research of the observation, because we put in the, the effort of the interpretation, though, don't stop there. Devour. The text is alive today. Use it. See how it applies. There should be growth that comes from reading God's word. It should change us. If it's not, go through and answer some of these questions regarding the text that you're looking over. I've loved this. Each time I've gone through it, I know I've learned something great from it. Um, this is how I prepare whenever I preach as I go through this exact same method of observing, interpreting, and then hopefully landing on some place that applies not only to me, but as I'm looking at it, how can I uh, present this as an application point for our church? I don't always go through this system whenever I'm reading the text. However, whenever I'm studying the text, this is the, the system that I always begin with is what does the text actually say and how can I observe it? Um, and I'll have many different lists of observations. Sometimes I don't write them down. Sometimes I just kind of think through them. But man, this is a, a course that completely changed how I looked at Scripture. Um, it completely changed the way that I looked at Scripture. So hopefully it's been at least somewhat helpful to you. Um, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. Simply Craig at Stone Oak Bible, and I would love to answer any questions.